Hello, hello, welcome once again to Reason for Hope. Very glad that you're joining us here today for our live broadcast of Reason for Hope, in case it's your first time or in case you forget you know, from yesterday, is an hour-long live broadcast, which is guided by your questions on the Bible. You can send your questions in through our multiple online platforms, and we spend this next hour um, answering those questions with uh, the use of God's Word, the Bible. So if you have a question, maybe on a passage of Scripture, um, maybe the Bible as a whole, uh, maybe something you're going through in your life, you'd like a biblical perspective, you're trying to honor the Lord and not sure how to do that. Um, anything along those lines, any honest questions, as long as you know that we are going to use the Bible to find the answers. That's what we're all about here on A Reason for Hope. So we're very grateful that you've found us or um, joined us, however it is, on our broadcast here. And please do send your questions in on those platforms. I'll be going over those in just a minute to make you familiar with all the ways that you can join us. My name is Dave Robson. I'll be your host today. And as I said, I'll be fielding all those questions as they come on in with us today. Pastor Scott Richards. He's hey, everybody. the senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. Good to have you with us again. Good to be here. Yeah, you're doing well? Yeah, fantastic. It's pretty warm here in uh, Tucson, Arizona. Yeah, not, so. not quite as bad as yesterday. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, take, quite. We'll, we'll take a few degrees below yeah, I guess uh, it, the boiling point I guess if we depends. can get them. That's right. <laughs> It depends what you're doing. I went to Costco today. That was that was kind of warm. Yeah, loading up my vehicle. But uh, also with us, uh, Pastor Sean Richards as well. You doing well today? Yeah, very moist. Very yeah. moist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're right on the edge of our summer thunderstorms. So, yeah, uh, we can't even say it's a dry heat now. No, right. It's a little humid. It is, but it's not raining yet. Yeah, and it builds up and it builds up, and then it, the Just, lovely rain comes. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. We'll, 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 Either way, we're seeking shelter indoors. That's yeah, right. Exactly. But we can't complain. It's Duck and here. cover is our motto. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. But it is lovely here in, in the desert, and we're glad to be here and glad to be with you today. As I mentioned, Reason for Hope is a live broadcast Monday through Friday. We're, we're with you here at Mountain Standard Time in Tucson, Arizona. But, of course, you can join us all around the world through the wonders of the Internet. Um, there. It's an outreach and ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. So keep that in mind when you're trying to find us. That will help you out. We have a website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. While you're there, you're welcome to have a click around there. We have lots going on. Obviously, we have services on a Sunday and a, a Wednesday night like tonight. But other events and support groups and Bible studies and all kinds of good stuff. You can check out the archive of our teaching and all kinds of things. So have a look around while you're there. Let us know if you have any questions about that. But for tonight, if you go to that Watch Live tab, that you'll see right there. That'll take you to our live page. Anytime we're live, we stream to that page right there, the direct link that you can type into your address bar, ccftucson.online.church. If you type that in, that will take you right to that page as well. When we're offline, you'll see a schedule of, of upcoming events. So you can check that out, and you'll see a countdown to the next time we'll be live. But when we're live, like we are right now, you'll see um, the video there. You can sign in with a username of your choice and then use the chat function to send your question in through there and I will be watching as we go along. We're on Facebook as well. Again, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson or facebook.com slash CCF Tucson. Don't forget to like and share. We'd appreciate that. And then send your question in on the chat box right there. We'll be interacting with you there as well. But Facebook, another way you can join us live. We have an app for your mobile device as well. Look for, you've guessed it, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Look for that red background with the white Calvary Chapel Dove logo. And that's our app. Download that on your, your iPhone or your Android or your iPad, and you can watch us on there. And we have a channel on Roku and Apple TV as well, so look for us in your channel store and add us there. You can watch us on your TV. We're on YouTube as well. The channel is called A Reason for Hope, so look for A Reason for Hope 
on YouTube. We are live there as we speak as well. And of course, you can use the, the comments uh, to send your questions in. We'll get those as we go along. Um, if you missed the show or you want to recap, that live tab right there takes you to our archive. Anytime we've been live, uh, it's stored right there for you. So you can catch up on past events as well. So YouTube's a great resource. Don't forget to like and um, subscribe, click on the notification bell and all that, that good YouTube stuff. We'd appreciate that as well. Uh, Pastor Scott right here, he's on Twitter. If you're a Twitter kind of person, you can follow along with him, Scott R4H. He posts highlights from the show and commentary on world events and news events as, as crazy things happen in our world. He relates that to uh, prophecy and end times and biblical perspective and all that kind of good stuff. So follow along with Scott. If you're on Twitter, Scott R4H. There's some kind of healthy and unhealthy debates going on there too and all kinds of stuff. So <laughs> you know, We try to make them as healthy, so as, healthy as possible. <laughs> try to elevate our debatees. Yes. Yeah. Elevate yeah. the debate. Yeah. yeah. Make a rap out of that. Yeah. We're on Rumble as well. If you're on that platform, A Reason for Hope Bible Q&A on Rumble. Uh, we post videos there as well. And we have an email address. You can email us there anytime. Questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questionsforhope. That's all spelled out with letters at gmail dot com send you a question and we'll be checking that as well throughout the show and beyond and get to those questions as well uh, welcome if you listen to us on the radio on reach radio or one of the radio affiliates you're listening to uh, the last show we did pre-recorded so we're not live with you so to speak so you'll want to keep that email address in mind questions for hope at gmail.com and we'll get to that question on our next show so everywhere else i mentioned we are live as can be on the radio you're listening to a pre-recorded version but uh, we're glad you're listening in and consider joining us on one of those live platforms when you're not on your drive time or whatever uh, your uh, the case may be so once again send your questions in be brave uh, there's no there's no dumb question as long as it's an honest question we're glad to receive that once again we'll be using the bible to find the answers not our opinions uh, or answers but uh, lord willing his answers and his opinions as we use his word so that's what we're all about here well we always love to pause at this point and pray. Sean, would you like to pray today? Of course. That'd be great. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. We want to invite you to be here as well, not just to speak your word, but to equip my Father and I with your heart so that it will not only accurately represent your word, but properly and from our hearts honor your name. We're honored that we can be a part of this broadcast, whether it's receiving information or relating it. We understand that nothing's going to be worthwhile if it doesn't first and ultimately come from you. So we ask that that would be what this time is spent doing. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 It is true. Thanks now, I, I, I got to hype this up. Uh, we got a question from Confused About Leviticus. We needed clarification on the verse. He gave us the verse. So I want to I wanna get to that. Oh, good. Okay. I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, the question was, um, what did it mean when he said, don't mate two different kinds of animals? Uh, were they actually mating cats and dogs or were they prohibited from mating even within their own species. So something in Leviticus, Would right? Would that be dats and cogs then? The offspring? Yes. yes. <laughs> the ligers yes. Animals yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Hopefully um, the, the best of both. Yeah, and, and this he, is a liger. It's <laughs> <laughs> my best Napoleon dynamite, but go ahead. But uh, no, he, he gives us the reference, Leviticus 19.19, 19, and just referencing the verse in its entirety would give you the answer as far as the theme, but the motivation as to why is given at the start of the chapter. Let me just read the first four verses. The Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation, the children of Israel, and say to them, You should be holy 
for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and father, keep my Sabbaths, I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make yourselves molded gods, for I am the Lord your God. And it goes on to note a recap of the Ten Commandments. But what's interesting about this is he uses the word holy. Be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. The word holy, we usually associate it as, oh, that's someone who's spiritual, or that's even someone who's morally perfect. Neither quite get to the heart of the matter. The word holy, just to uh, get to the crux of the matter, means set apart, different, something whole, complete, self-sufficient. Think of those terms. Yeah, kadosh. So when we're talking about something being holy, God of Israel is making a point of emphasis that you're to be different. The nations that are separate from me and I separate from them, you're to be one with me and I to you. So when we see these examples, not just of the Ten Commandments, their legal system's going to set them apart a bit, but also in the way that even they handle their livestock, how they handle their clothing, and how they handle their crops. This is verse 19. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed, literally seed of another kind, nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. Now, the third one's kind of odd for a day and age when Paul Polyester seems to be the name of the game as far as clothing is concerned, poly meaning many and the materials and so forth. But when Israel was to make, say for example, their priestly garments, it was to be entirely wool, not just because of the desert well, environment. Linen. linen. But, yeah, because um, you weren't supposed to sweat. Yeah, yep. and that, that was the idea. <laughs> yeah. Now, mixing wool with linen would cause uh, difficulties in that yeah. process happening. So the idea was, of course, for them to stand out. When people were making priest garments in the other nations, it wouldn't matter. Likewise with crops, there's some commentaries, I can't verify, but I'll read them anyway, that say that pagans believed that in mixing as much of their crops as possible together would give like some sort of rejuvenation of the soil, some blessing from the gods and having all of their nutrients growing up together. But God said, no, you're to be different from them, plant wheat with wheat, plant grapes with grapes, so on and so forth. And then the first point is basically the same idea when you have your flocks together, make sure that they're separate from one another. Obviously, when you have animals together, they just mount without any discretion. The idea was for them to be separate, just like their clothing, just like their crops. So the verse in its entirety would answer the question. You go on to mention the verses going on from twenty or 1 to 28. Um, I think most of them are fairly straightforward when it's talking about, uh, in verse 20, lying carnally with a woman who's betrothed to a man as a concubine and who has not been redeemed nor give her freedom. This shall be for scourging, but if they shall be put to death because she was not free, and then he shall bring a trespass offering to the Lord to the door of the tabernacle of meeting a ram as a trespass offering. If you're betrothed to someone but you compromise, in a sense, uh, relationally, you're not married to them yet, that is still a sin, and that's to be restored. Uh, verse 22 notes that it'll be restored, but it is still something wrong. Verse 23, when you come into the land and have planted all kind of trees for food, you shall count their fruit as uncircumcised. It's not uh, referring to the state of their genitalia, but it's noting that they are the pagans in their fruit. You're to cut them all down, burn them all down, have everything be grown fresh and new when you're a part of it. Because note the theme, verse 24, the fruit shall be holy. 
and praise to the Lord, that in the fifth year you may eat its fruit, it may yield to you its increase, I am the Lord your God. So instructions on how they were to handle the plants. Uh, in verse 26, you shall not eat anything with blood, you shall not practice divination uh, or soothsaying, literally drug use, but the Madame Lasagna's uh, fortune-telling kind of delves into that too. Verse 27, this one I take to heart, you shall not shave around the sides of your head, nor shall you disfigure the edges of your beard. Now, Dad, you've been going through the book of Ezekiel, and there was an interesting incident where he was instructed to do that and right. to categorize the disposal of the hair, not just because you need something to do with it, but because that was meant to communicate something grievous, something right. to be shamed of. Could you give us a brief overview on that so that the cultural understanding is appropriate? Well, well one of the reasons they would uh, shave was as a sign of mourning. Uh, you would shave off all of your hair, and uh, that would be a sign that, I guess, to use the uh, modern term, you were sitting shiva, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, that you were mourning the passing of someone who was close to you. It was considered uh, a uh, not only something that would show mourning, it was also considered something that was uh, considered uh, a great shame to have your beard shaved. Uh, King David uh, sent some emissaries uh, to uh, uh, basically talk terms of peace uh, and uh, offer aid to a uh, adjoining nation. Uh, the king thought that they were just spying them out, so uh, among other things, uh, he cut their clothing off above uh, the buttocks and uh, shaved them. Uh, and when they returned, David had them stay outside of Jerusalem around the area of Jericho until such time as their beards could grow back again. So it was a mm. very big deal to have a beard back then. Right. So, and the reason I wanted to take the time for that is because verse 28 has a lot of controversy. And if you don't understand, there's some cultural practices being observed here. You're going to miss it. Verse 28, and, and we'll end it here because that's what you asked about. Uh, you shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for right. the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. I am the Lord. So in the context of mourning, in the context of addressing pagan rituals and the sort of things you're to do as Israel that's going to set you apart, that's going to make you holy, set apart as unto me, you're not going to observe the ways that pagans observe their grief. Right. And how is that generally done? Well, even today, there's a custom at, um, in many uh, Hispanic and South American countries that when people die beside you, you tattoo tombstones. And soldiers, even when they have comrades die at their side or even at their hand, they would tattoo skulls on their bodies. And these being the sort of things, there's many cultures that do different ways. For those of you who remember the first Black Panther movie, uh, Eric Killmonger, the main villain, was showcased with an actual African custom where they would uh, make basically indents in their bodies and then fill them with sand, cause them to make the, basically these big uh, polyps or these uh, basically ovaline zits, yeah. for lack of a better term, and it was to mark every man that you had killed. These are the sort of things that are being described here. So when we're being told not making tattoos or cutting in your flesh for the dead, obviously as someone who struggles with self-harm myself, there is a avoidance of that too, but the motivation for tattoos matters more. These practices were things that the pagans did in order to venerate their gods or to express grief, not to shave your beards, not because razors are forbidden. It's because this is how pagans expressed grief. You're to observe me. You're to model yourself after me. It's you and I, not you and the other nations trying to model with each other. And if you remember, 
most, if not all, of Israel's problems came when they tried to model the customs of the nations around them. The golden calf was modeling themselves after the Egyptians. The desire of a king was them, literally, in First Samuel, wanting to be like the other nations, rejecting God's authority. They wanted their own authority risen up over them. On and on it goes. You mentioned verses, uh, chapter 19, verses 19 through 28. Those are the passages, but just note that these are the sort of things that the chapter starts with that would make you holy, set apart. This is what makes you with me. You're not to be like the other nations. You're to be my nation. That's the point. Let me know if that helps. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Only thing I'd add to that is uh-huh. uh, we do get this question a lot on the program about uh, tattoos, uh-huh. and uh, they will quote the passage that we just went through in Leviticus 19 as proof positive that tattoos are of the devil. Mm-hmm. Well, notice you're not to make marks, you're not to cut yourself or make marks on your body for the dead. Uh, in, in other words, if uh, the reason that you get a tattoo is because you're worshiping pagan idols and uh, deceased spirits Mm -hmm. and want to uh, represent, then I'd say getting a tattoo is not a good idea for a believer, not a good (laughs) thing to do. Uh, On the other side of the coin, if uh, some people want to uh, get a tattoo, get a mark uh, upon their flesh, it it really depends why. If it's just a commitment, say, to a, a permanent commitment to a passing social fad, um, well, think about it, because you're going to have to live with it the rest of your life. Uh, I really do think uh, that we don't see a thou shalt or a thou shalt not uh, in the scriptures about it. But the most important thing is why. Mm-hmm. Why are you doing it? Uh, you know, the first time I was confronted with getting a tattoo, I was in college. A bunch of us in my fraternity, had, had we got in a Bible study going. A bunch of guys came to know the Lord, and walking with the Lord in a fraternity setting is a pretty challenging thing. Yeah. So we want to be accountable to each other. So. Uh, one night, uh, some of the guys said, man, we're going to go down to this tattoo parlor. We're all going to get a fish tattooed on our ankle so that it'll remind us of our commitment that we made to the Lord. You want to go with us? And I was like, uh, tattoos, uh, I've seen these kind of places, not super sanitary. Uh, <laughs> seen, heard that it's painful. You know, I think you guys know where I'm coming from in my walk with the Lord. You guys knock yourself out. That's great. And so they did, you know, and, and I, I thought that was a great thing, you know, because it was done for the right reason. Uh, you know, again, we're told that when Jesus comes back, he's going to have a name written on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, he told the church at Philadelphia that one of the rewards that they were going to get was that he was going to write upon them uh, his new name and the new name that he gives to us. So uh, from my point of view, I think I'll wait till I get to the kingdom to get my first tattoo. <laughs> your mileage may vary. Yeah. Uh, just remember, whatever you do, present your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Uh, if you do that for that reason, can't go wrong. Yeah, very true. Very good. Great. Well, I'm glad we got to that question uh, today. We had a question come in through our email address from David, questionsforhope at gmail.com. David says, I'm curious uh, your thoughts and commentary on Jesus calling his disciples, O you of little faith. Throughout the New Testament Gospels, um, throughout the New Testament Gospels, but when they ask for more faith in Luke 17:5, Jesus tells them, uh, the faith the size of a mustard seed is all that you need. Uh, I just read the account of Peter walking on water, falling in after taking his eyes off Jesus, and Jesus saying to him, Oh, you little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus has encounters with others where he says, Great is your faith, but the guys he has um, with him never really got that commendation. So great faith, little faith. <laughs> 
how much faith do we need and how much is available to us? Well, what is it to begin with? Yeah, faith, well, right. pistis, literally in Greek, is trust with reason. It can mm. be synonymous with terms like loyalty, for example. But when people trust somebody, it can be for good or bad reasons. But by putting your faith in somebody, it's that decision to trust. Uh, people say, oh, it's just blind belief. It can be misinformed belief, but it still is informed. So don't buy the atheist rhetoric of saying that, oh, faith is just believing in something without evidence. No, it's acknowledging something is true with what you have. So given the fact that the apostles were witness and privy to dozens, if not more, of Jesus's public miracles, when they faltered, it was called out because they had no excuse. They had seen Jesus do these things before. They had done these things in the name mm -hmm. of Jesus before, and they still ended up falling up short. So what the correction was, was for them to remember the reasons they have to trust him. And that's the point that he makes in verse 6. If you have faith of a mustard seed, can you say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots, be planted in the sea, and it would obey you? And which of you having a servant, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come down in the field, come at once and sit down and eat? Will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper, gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk? Afterward you will eat and drink. How then, or does he thank that server because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all the things which are your commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. This is expected of you. I don't, uh, for example, go to my employer, he's also my father, but you do also sign the checks, and say, hey, Dad, I didn't steal from the church today. Your response shouldn't be, good for you, Sean. It should be, you weren't supposed to. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> why is this conversation happening? Uh, why do you have to clarify that today? What was going on yesterday? You know, when it comes to the reasons we have to trust God, Jesus was saying, this is the bare minimum. If you don't believe what I've done, if you aren't looking at the reasons you have to believe who I am, what more can be done for you? If you were willing to acknowledge and mustard seed is noting the smallest kind of seed that Israelites in this region of the world would have access to, the simple acknowledgement of even most basic facts would lead you to the conclusions that you need to. Increase our faith. Give us more reasons to trust you. It's like, what am I doing every day with you guys? And that's why in John chapter 14, when Jesus leaves his apostles, he tells them, I'm going away. I'm going back to the Father. He tells them, whatever you ask in my name, it will be done for you. Now, what does it mean to do something in Jesus' name? It means as if you were him the sort of things he would do. His example of moving mountains or causing a tree to be thrown into the ocean, it's not saying, okay, you have enough faith and you're going to be an X-Man man. You're going to have telekinesis and earthquake powers and stuff. No, Jesus didn't use the authority given to him by the Father on this earth to entertain himself or to scare people, right? But if we're acting on behalf of Jesus, we're representing him to this world, it's first going to start with trusting he did these things, and I'm representing him, so so can I. Secondly, I'm doing these things because he would. <laughs> and those are two very important things to keep in line. But when the apostles kept having to get called out on their faith, it wasn't to say, we just got to believe harder. No, they needed to remember the basic reasons. This is the fundamentals of a relationship with God. Apart from faith, it is what? Impossible, Impossible to yeah. please him. So yeah. you don't yeah. trust that God is, 
and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11, it's all meaningless. But because we have reasons to believe in God, starting with the resurrection, that's where our relationship with God starts. That's why Jesus had to hammer this point home with them, not once, not twice, but many times. Yeah, yeah and, and you know, I think the other thing that really needs to be emphasized, you mentioned this, Sean, is that faith is trust. It implies a relationship. And, yep. uh, you know, it's not just believing certain truth statements about God or even the concept, well, I imagine, you know, theoretically, philosophically, God could, in fact, do something about this. Yeah. It's uh, making the statement uh, in our hearts, yeah, I not only believe you can, but that you care about me and you will. Mm. You know, the, a great example of this, uh, in, in contrast to, say, where the disciples were at, uh, is in Matthew 15, it says, Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, have mercy, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged her, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. In other words, the disciples looked at this woman, saw as nothing is a bother. Jesus doesn't say a word to her at this point. Now, if I had been that woman and I had this incredibly pressing need, my daughter's demon-possessed, for goodness sake, and I come to Jesus, he doesn't say a word to me, and then the disciples are looking at me like I'm the skunk at the picnic, I might have just packed up my stuff and gone away. But uh, again, he answered uh, her and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshiped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now, Jesus wasn't calling her uh, an insult there, the term little dogs, that's what it literally is in the Greek, puppies in a sense. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, a woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Now, there's a lot of things you could get into in this uh, incident. But the thing that is really amazing to me is not once did he say to his disciples, great is your faith. He said they had little faith. Right. They had faith the size of a mustard seed, like you mentioned. Yep. You know, seems like they were falling short of that. Um, but here's this woman who simply wouldn't take no for an answer as far mm. as her need goes, who took the extra step that the disciples prior to this time had not actually done, that is, worshiping him. Uh, they were still kind of up in the air about, you know, who do you say that I am? Matthew 16, they mm. get into that, that whole discussion. Uh, this woman had made up her mind. Uh, this was God. Uh, only hope, only chance. Uh, I don't care what the disciples think. I don't care if Jesus' response initially isn't what I would have expected of him. I'm going to come to him, and, uh, you know, even if he says uh, it's not going to take the little children's bread and throw it to the little dogs, uh, even a crumb from you, Jesus, hmm. is going to be enough to meet my need. And uh, Jesus said, uh, woman, great is your faith. Uh, of all the things that Jesus could say to you, uh, if you and I could get in the Wayback Machine and go back to the, the time of Jesus hmm. and hang out with him for a while, and Jesus were to look at us and give some word of uh, evaluation about our character, evaluation about our spiritual life, uh, man, I could think of few things that would mean more to me than to have the Lord look at me and say, great is your faith. Yeah, and she wasn't entitled to service from God. She just acknowledged, this is God. If I'm going to get any help, it's going to be from him. That's yeah. your point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, 
don't miss the main point there, and that is that faith is more than just, say, signing on the line on some church creed. It's more than just saying, well, I believe certain doctrinal statements about God. Um, it's more than a feeling. It's saying, God, I trust my life to you. And, and that's the difference between just intellectual acceptance of certain things about God, right. knowing about God, and knowing him personally. Do you yeah. trust him? Yeah. yeah. Yes. So Very good. Yeah. David, thank you for that question. Great question. Huge question. Hope that helps you out. Uh, we have a question from Robert here. Uh, good evening, my brothers. Good evening to you as well. Glad that you're joining us. Uh, so I was reading on the UN website about their upcoming conference. Uh, I guess it is about their push for a seven-year agenda on many of a plethora of things to meet. And I'm hearing from different people that they're saying this could be the seven-year covenant as mentioned in Daniel. But I believe the one in Daniel is different. Please tell me the difference because I know we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Thank you and God bless you guys. Oh, you hear that, everybody? The UN has an agenda. I feel better already. <laughs> now, we're, we're Josh, and yeah. uh, the UN can say a lot of things, but there and are... And they do. Yeah, they do. <laughs> at, at, <laughs> at great uh, taxpayer expense, oh, by yes. the way. Yes. But yeah. uh, it's, it's about as much hot air and hot wind as they claim is in the ozone layer. The point being made is when we're talking about the seven-year covenant with many... Uh, first of all, when it comes to the Antichrist and his involvement in it, we're being told, first of all, that he's not necessarily going to put it forward, but he's going to confirm it. So to the credit of people who would say that this is the seven-year peace treaty, uh, it could be, just like when we talked about in Prophecy Updates about the Abraham Accords, when the Antichrist comes along, he's not going to say, hey, this is my policy, all everyone listen to me. He'll be one of the names that ratifies it, and that'll be an important distinction that will then identify him later as the Antichrist at the abomination that causes desolation, the desecration of the Jewish temple, which, by the way, hasn't been rebuilt yet. So let's include that detail out. Uh, when we are talking about the seven-year peace treaty, we're talking about the reference made in Daniel chapter 9 and verses 24 through 27. Let me start in verse 26, where we're noting from Messiah's execution to the coming of the prince, there will be a, a pause, if you will. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, literally executed. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end shall be with a flood, and with the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he, what is he, the prince who is to come, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. So that final 69th week that paused after the temple, the sanctuary was destroyed, the people of the prince who is to come is going to rise up, this one with power, this prince, this um, individual with influence, a principality is generally someone whose area of influence is involved there. But I say prince, you guys think, okay, big crown is king, little crown is prince. You get the idea. But he's going to confirm a covenant with many for one week, and in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, the fulfillment of all these promises, which is poured out on the desolate. That's the great tribulation. So noting this last seven-year period of time, we note the term Shabuah, the weeks of years, all these things, we can get into it more, but talk of these things usually ends up taking piecemeal details instead of the whole picture. 
when people ask, is this person the Antichrist? There's a long list of qualifications, the first of which is he will not reveal himself, Second Thessalonians 2 says, until he who restrains is taken out of the way. Now, what that uh, is entailing, there's generally three theories, whether it's referring to the Church, the Holy Spirit's redeeming work, or just the, the concept of sustaining life on this earth. The third is kind of bizarre. The Antichrist is going to come back to a pile of dust, a la Job. So uh, what was the other two? It would be, well, the Holy Spirit's going to stop restraining him, and then he'll just rise to power someday. That's generally the, the post-tribulation view or the preterist view. And then there's others that would say, were of them, that this is referencing the Church, the Holy Spirit indwelling the hearts of his people, right. and the work he's doing today is in the lives of those he set aside, much like Israel was in the Old Covenant and will one day be during the Tribulation and through the Millennium. But with that then being said, the removal of this individual will allow the son of perdition, one of the names of the Antichrist, to appear, and then it notes in the same sentence that he comes up, whom the Lord will destroy with the word of his mouth and the brightness of his coming. It's Revelation 19. The Antichrist and the false prophet will be destroyed by just the presence of our Lord, which is awesome. But the point being made is just that. If the Antichrist is going to reveal himself, it's going to be in the light of the removal of this restraining work of the Spirit, whether that's an invisible work or a plainly visible event that we call the rapture, you can be the judge. But if this UN declaration of a seven-year agenda for the world is in fact going to be the covenant with many that the Antichrist will confirm, it no more confirms anything than it would deny it. We need more information than just seven years. So you see these themes, look it up, Make sure that you look at their agenda and go, does that include peace with Israel? Because that's important. But also, is it going to be confirmed by the man we would identify as the Antichrist? And even then, he won't be the only one to confirm it. The identity of the Antichrist won't be as obvious as some mm -hmm. popular media make it to be until the halfway point of the tribulation. Mm -hmm. You'll know if you're in the tribulation, that's for sure, yeah. but you won't know his identity per se until he declares himself God and demands worship. Same reference, 2 Thessalonians 2. Yeah. Right. Anything to add? No, to I think that? that's great. No. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Robert, thank you for that question. Hope that, that helps you out and clears some of that up for you. Uh, question from Erica. Uh, who was Satan? This is about Ezekiel twenty-eight sixteen. Ezekiel twenty-eight sixteen. Who was Satan trading with in Ezekiel twenty-eight sixteen? I have heard it in the gap theory before Adam and Eve. Thanks. That's related. That was right? not yes. Satan. Yeah. That was the king of Tyre. Yeah. Well, okay. a couple things that yeah. we would say here. Uh, first of all, uh, great question, Erica. And we read the entire chapter. Uh, chapter twenty-eight begins with these words: The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, "Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God." You know, it's really interesting. In the book of Ezekiel, uh, there are seven major people groups that are called out outside of Israel. There's sort of this mm -hmm. parenthesis, if you will, from the time that God gives Ezekiel a prophecy that uh, a exile, a refugee, a survivor of the fall of Jerusalem is going to come to him and say, boy, everything you said was going to happen, happened. Uh, from the time that prophecy was made until it was fulfilled, you have to go all the way over to Ezekiel chapter 33. In between Ezekiel chapters 25 and 33, we see seven different nations called out specifically by God for judgment. And one of them is Tyre. Now, Tyre was a seafaring place. Uh, they were the Phoenicians who were experts at uh, shipping 
uh, goods and services by cargo all over uh, the Mediterranean at that particular time. As such, they were very, very wealthy. And so uh, one of the things that we see in this chapter, uh, in Ezekiel chapter 28, and uh, again, uh, it's led into by Ezekiel chapter 27, mm. is that the king of Tyre is in focus here, who was a worldly ruler. Now, where it gets interesting is this. Uh, you know, it says, because your heart is lifted up, you say, I am a god, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the midst of the seas, yet you're a man and not a god. Though you set your heart as the heart of a god, behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that can be hidden from you. With your wisdom and your understanding, you have gained riches for yourself and gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in trade, you've increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you've set your heart as the heart of a god, behold, therefore, I will bring strangers against you, the most terrible of the nations. And they will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall throw you down into the pit. You shall die at the death of the slain in the midst of the seas. Will you still say before him who slays you, I'm a God, but you shall be a man and not a God. In the hand of him who slays you, you shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of aliens. For I have spoken, says the Lord God. Now, the first part of this tells us that God's message is to a literal human king mm-hmm. who had gotten majorly too big for his spiritual britches. Mm. He thought he was a god. And uh, go to Egypt, the pharaohs thought that they were the sun god Ra. Uh, You go to all kinds of different people, even the Caesars themselves, Caesar worship. Uh, Mm. uh, One of the reasons the early church was persecuted was because uh, you had to once a year go into the temple of Caesar, uh, burn a pinch of incense and say, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. Uh, No born again Christian would do that. Yeah. And so the Romans, they're going, well, we know these Caesars and they're, you know, but you kind of got to go along. And it was sort of a loyalty oath. Mm-hmm. They'd say, oh, well, we can't trust these people. Now, a really fascinating uh, insight into all of this is the letter of uh, Pliny the Younger uh, to the Emperor Trajan asking, what should I do with these Christians? They seem mm-hmm. like they're an unruly bunch. Mm-hmm. They don't seem harmful. They studied what they believe, you know, they, they swear to have these great morals and they sing a hymn to this Christ as if he was a god, yep. uh, but uh, they just won't swear allegiance to Rome. They're very stubborn about it. Stubborn people are troubled people, so I've killed a few of them. Mm. What do you think I ought to do? Mm. Uh, so uh, the Romans didn't really think, bottom line, that mm. Caesar was God, mm. but a lot of Caesars thought they were God. Mm. You know, they thought they were God to be worshipped. And so this king of Tyre was cut out of that same cloth. Now notice, Erica, in the first part of all of this, this is all stuff that pertains to a regular human being. Uh, You can't circumcise a cherub, if you will. Uh, This guy is put down as being uh, uncircumcised and, and so on. But then in verse 11, the prophecy shifts. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. And thus says the Lord God. Now, here we see, and probably the best way to take it, there's different views on this, obviously, but the best way to take this is that now Ezekiel is being shown by God the power behind the throne. Why was the king of Tyre so wealthy? Why was he so rewarded? Why was he so well thought of? Where did he get this idea in his brain that he was God to be worshipped? Well, from the guy who pretty much perfected that from the get-go, Satan himself. Mm. Isaiah 14 He made five I will statements, and it would be like the Most High. God said, one, no, you won't. 
He'll be cast down to the lowermost parts of the earth. So Satan has always had that as his agenda, to be like God, to be God, to be worshiped, the Antichrist demanding worship in the last days. Great example of all of this. And so we see Satan as the power behind the throne here, because there are certain statements being made here at this point that simply do not apply to any human ruler uh, among them. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond. It goes on. It says, uh, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you from the day that you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. So here we see the power, the spiritual power behind the throne of Tyre. It was Satan. None of these things are characteristic of the king of Tyre. He wasn't in Eden. He wasn't the seal of perfection. Uh, he has always been a fallen, sinful human being. But Satan, who was behind him, uh, is described in this passage. Now, notice uh, Satan is identified as the anointed cherub who covers, uh, clearly identified as a cherub and not a human being, perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Now, this is where the focus comes back, I believe, to the king of Tyre. He says, by the abundance of your training, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, a covering cherub, from the midst of fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they may gaze at you. So here we see the downfall of Satan. And what God is showing Ezekiel is just as the power behind the throne of the king of Tyre was cast down, had this high exalted position like the king of Tyre. Every one of his desires uh, met everybody ooing and aahing and telling him he's a god. So Satan, with his desire to be a god, fell and so will the king of Tyre. He says, you defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst and it devoured you and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the people are astonished at you. You become a horror and you shall be no more forever. In other words, Satan, we know, doesn't have an ending. Uh, he doesn't have a no more forever. He is a continual spiritual being who will live in separation from God forever. Uh, this king of Tyre's time here on earth was going to come to an end. He was going to be brought down and his heart, his fall was going to be hard indeed. And so what we really see here, Erica, is a warning for a lot of people. And, you know, again, I could name names, but uh, just seeing uh, on uh, the social media these days, uh, about the sad plight of individuals uh, who at one point, say back in the 80s and the 90s, were considered at the pinnacle, at the top, uh, incredibly famous, uh, literally the world at their feet. Uh, now they've fallen apart. Some of them have uh, chronic mental problems. Mm. Uh, you know, we, we read about these train wrecks their lives have become. Uh, we see, you know, these individuals trying to retain their beauty through increasingly invasive forms of plastic surgery, which just kind of makes them look more and more freakish. It's almost like Satan lifted them up so that they were the pinnacle, they were worshiped. You know, we use the term American Idol to yeah. describe, and I think there's a little irony behind all of that yeah. because, you know, once you start believing your PR, 
uh, you start to think you're more than just a human being. You start to think that you're a God. Mm -hmm. And yet, Satan builds people up. He uses them to influence people away from God. And then when they're done, he casts them aside. Same thing going on here with the king of Tyre. So all of that is just to say, when we're dealing with prophecy, sometimes we will see a dual fulfillment in a prophecy. We will see a prophecy that definitely is above and beyond anything that could ever be said of the king of Tyre. Uh, he wasn't in Eden, for instance. Uh, but uh, we do see that the power behind the throne, the one that made the king of Tyre so successful, that lifted up his ego to think that he was a god, was no less a person that came up with that idea, you shall not die, you shall be as God, uh, was uh, definitely working behind the throne. So uh, when we study prophecies like this, we have to be very careful about that uh, to jump in and say, well, there had to be a pre-Adamic race, and Satan, I guess, was uh, trading with them, yeah. going to the swap meet with these people before yeah. they were destroyed. Yeah. No evidence whatsoever of a pre-Adamic race in Scripture. Uh, in fact, I think the idea that there was a fall before the fall mm. is really laid to rest when we are told in the book of Genesis that God saw everything that he had created, and it was very good. The right. word in Hebrew carries the idea of absolutely perfect, no fault, no flaw, no defect. Mm. Uh, to say, for instance, that there was this pre-Adamic race, there was this fall, and that's where we got dinosaurs, um, how God could look for instance, at nature, red and fang and claw, uh, the the predator and the prey model, where pain and suffering, even dinosaur bones we have with bone cancer in them, was very good. Uh, just doesn't seem yeah. to fit the language there. So right. what happened? Well, somewhere between that pronouncement of very good and where the serpent comes on the scene in Genesis chapter three, the fall of Satan took place, and yeah. one third of the angels. And then when man, who's been given dominion over the creation ratified that decision, that's when the fall took place. Mm. Uh, to say there was some kind of pre-Adamic race is really reading into a lot of scripture rather than reading out of scripture. A plain yeah. reading of Genesis would never lead you to the conclusion that there was some pre-Adamic race and some fall before the fall. Yeah, makes sense. So. Thank you, yeah. Anything to add to that, Sean, before we move on? No, great. Well, uh, Erica, thank you for that question. A great question. I hope that helps clear some of that up for you. Thank for being. Thank Since you I'm for studying Ezekiel, I was all over it. Yeah, you were, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's cheating. Yeah. yeah. Uh, question from Atlanta. Atlanta. Yeah. If it's uh, Elijah and Enoch that are the two witnesses, do they know what is happening on earth? Are they aware of what is going on, or do they not care because they are in the Lord's presence? God says, "Don't worry about tomorrow," so they don't know until they come on the scene. So no Atlanta. sense in bringing up Elijah and Enoch. Do anyone who are in the presence of the Lord care about what's going on apart from what's in front of them? Mm. Well, um, it would be, you know, it kind of reminds me of something that uh, our good friend Don Stewart would say. Uh, well, I recognize people in heaven when I yeah. get there. Uh, and I always loved how he answered that. He said, well, I don't anticipate being dumber in heaven than I am right now. <laughs> uh, I also don't anticipate being less loving in heaven than I am right now, mm. less invested in the lives of people that God has brought in my life in heaven than I am right now. So as far as not caring, kind of the, oh, I'm in the presence of Jesus, so who cares what's going on with those guys? Well, right. Jesus cares about what's going on with us, mm. and we're going to share his heart when we're in heaven. Does that mean they're looking in on us? Does that mean you know they're watching us from the grandstands? 
Uh, you know, we, we really can't be dogmatic about that. I kind of doubt that. Uh, I do think that they are just in awe of who Jesus is, but also those who are in heaven completely and perfectly share his heart. So because that's the case, uh, I, I don't think that there's that passivity there. But as far as uh, going on with that question, yeah, you know, is it Elijah and Enoch, or you know, what, what's the deal? Well, we can, uh, I guess, speculate all we want and go through the various theories, the three general most appropriate ones. For certain, one of them is Elijah, not just because of the internal evidence, but the external promise. Jesus said there would be a future coming of Elijah, the prophecy of Malachi 4. Even though it was partially fulfilled in John the Baptist, there is still a future fulfillment. Old Testament prophecies are all over that sort of thing. Just look at Isaiah 11, or Isaiah 7. Or, or uh, Matthew 17, where Elijah shows up again. Yeah, at the uh, <laughs> yeah. Mount of Transfiguration. Yeah. But when people are looking for the identity of the second witness and how that would tie into this question, Enoch's one option because, like Elijah, he was caught up to be with the Lord and didn't physically die. And people think, well, it was given to man to die once, then after that comes the judgment. These two were set aside. Their physical death will be at the hands of the Antichrist. Okay, um, not too dogmatic because there are also people who are resurrected and they died twice, but <laughs> we're, we're not noting the exception, disproving the rule. In fact, it proves the rule. But if we're asking uh, another issue, what about the other two? The immediate prior chapter to Revelation 11 that mentions the two witnesses of fulfillment of Zechariah 4, the two olive trees, uh, they would say because John is directly instructed by the angel after he's told to do something very Ezekiel-like, to eat the little book that's in his hand. Uh, he tells him, you must prophesy again to many people, nations, tongues, and kings. Then goes on to mention the two witnesses. That's a hint some yeah. people take. Others look at the internal evidence specifically. I'm one of those. I, maybe you as well. Uh, that because we're told that he turns waters to blood. Only one Old Testament prophet did that. And just like Elijah is identified by the preventing it from raining for three and a half years and calling down fire on those who would harm him. We also see the second individual identified as Moses in turning the Nile River to blood. So uh, take your pick who and what they are, but I guess the substance of the question is, since we're not told who they are, but that these two unique individuals are in this sort of altered status, if you take the Elijah Enoch place, that they went to heaven but without physical death, they were caught up to be right. with the Lord. Do they have this unique connection to this earth because their bodies are somewhat still destined to die here? And the answer to that is basically just repeating the foundational point. In the presence of the Lord, there's newness and fullness of joy. Not ignorance, not absence, not indifference. Right. The fact is that they are glorified. And even though they do have a future purpose, it's no more a, I guess, specification of their genus in heavenly glory than it would be for us, or let's uh, just stick in Scripture, to a guy like Lazarus when he was physically dead for a time, but that God uh, brought him back right. for the purpose of his glory. So, yeah, um, they're, they're not a different kind of thing in heaven. They're not a different kind of person in heaven. The fact that they didn't physically die doesn't mean that in the presence of the Lord they're put into a different uh, status or a special category of people. There isn't, we're not Muslims. We don't believe in like these seven categorical heavens and, uh, you know, you have to uh, be a follower of a specific kind of prophet or fit these specific kinds of good deeds to get into better ones. Uh, we're not Mormons that believe in a mishandling of 1 Corinthians 15, that there's three levels of glory in heaven. 
and you have to observe certain ceremonies to become a member of the highest heaven and so forth. It's getting so lost in the weeds, it ends up missing the point. So what, what are we told about the two witnesses, what they do and why they're there? And there's a reference to the Old Testament for them. Who are they? Good idea of one of them. Ambiguous, there's three theories more if you want to get weird, but uh, three theories in general. Uh, I, I won't say weird. The fourth theory is Zerubbabel. Yeah. You can take or <laughs> you can ask a follow-up question if you want to know yeah, I heard why. Chuck Smith teach that once. Yeah, but uh, oh, yeah. If, if you want to go into Haggai, we can. But yeah. the, the point being made is this. What we're told is what we needed to know. Revelation 11 notes how the gospel is going out during the first half of the tribulation, and in particular, the fate of these two witnesses. How they will be witnessing, we know it's through miracles. Who will be witnessing? We're only told what they do. Why? Because that's what we needed to know. We can just stick to that. As far as the interwoven tie-ins to the nature of the supernatural, it's silly. <laughs> yeah. It's silly. Yeah. Very good. Well, Atlanta, thank you for that, that question. Great question. Thank you for being part of the show. We're starting our descent here, but we've got five minutes left. A I question from... thought my ears were popping. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. that's the humidity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Back to that yeah. again. Me too. Question from Henry. Um, my question is about uh, Satan and this fallen world. Why did God create this world in the first place if he knew everything that was going to happen for his glory? Why did he create Satan in the first place? Why not get uh, glory another way? Uh, create us all at once and let us free will choose him. And those that don't want to choose him, send them immediately to hell without allowing a fallen world to happen. So it's a good question, an obvious question. Why does God allow this world that we're in that is fallen and if he knew before that uh, this was going to happen. Yeah, uh, three th ways to go about that. First of all, God's not utilitarian. He doesn't do something because it works. He does things because he's glorified. And if we're going to say, well, God, you could have been glorified some other way, we're challenging a perfect mind. So uh, <laughs> I think we're working with less information than we think we have. Secondly, if we're going to say, well, why did God create Satan if he knew he was going to fall? Yeah, uh, God created me knowing I was going to sin too. I'm glad he created me, though, because acknowledging that decision is the, and this will tie into the third uh, key detail here that hopefully will clarify this issue for you and from the heart, giving us the same liberty, the same opportunity for redemption as condemnation. And what do I mean by that? Well, in a nutshell, there were, philosophically, four kinds of worlds that God could have created. Obviously, you can get into nuance with little details, but in terms of the judgment system, there are four ways right. that God could have created. First, he could have made a existence where only goodness, love, and holiness existed, in which case he wouldn't have created at all because he is f perfectly content and complete within himself. Second, he could have created a world where we see the possibility, or, or rather the prevention, of any kind of deviation within himself, which again you have to wonder why then bother to create it since he was completely sufficient in himself. So no creation or a pointless creation. He could have created an existence kind of like the one that you're prescribing, where judgment is emphasized. Like instant, yeah. So when Adam and Eve, when the man and woman, when any creation deviates from him that judgment was instantaneously enacted, it would have been annihilated immediately. 
there was the possibility of free will, but because we were given a system like you want, that then puts us in a place where we don't exist. Why? Because as the passage I'm going to read in a moment notes, we've all sinned. So we would have all been instantaneously eliminated. And you note, well, then, then you can give them the opportunity to be redeemed. That's the point. If God has a system where, where, four, right? where <laughs> you allow for the possibility of the ultimate evil, it's the only system where the possibility of the ultimate good can also exist and not have options one and two, a non-existent or a pointless creation. And here's what I mean, since we got a brief time. This is Romans chapter 5 and verse 15. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. The gift is not like that which came on the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came by many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's, pay attention, one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as though through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in the justification of life. So here's a system where God, A, only had to die for one sinner, and B, could save all of mankind as a result of a system where he allowed for the ultimate good, that is, a free will love relationship. Free will love relationship without a choice to refuse it is meaningless. A creation without the possibility of evil is indifferent as far as, it's, as far as the existence of God or not. But the point being made is, and again, for the sake of time, how does this system work? If one man could condemn us all, one man could save us all. That's the point. A system where God's one righteous act could redeem all of mankind. So, just likewise, in Adam being allowed to sin and condemn us all is the only system that would work and not put us in a perpetual state of either nonsense or, uh, I guess, trouble. <laughs> I'll just say that. Yeah, very good. That's it. Time. We'll see you again tomorrow. <laughs> Stick around. We're going live in half an hour. Book of Ezekiel. God bless you guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.